Boat Talk is brought to you in part by Captain Yo's Flaming Fish Performance Models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net, little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. It's coming up on 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your host Alan Sprague is up next. Good morning, good morning. That's our friend Schooner Fair right there in the background piping in another boat talk for this month. I'm Alan Sprague, the old rusty anchor is on hook alone today for boat talk. But we have guests uh, Zachary Cliver and Genevieve McDonald here today to talk about whales and uh, probably several other things too. And it is also a call-in show, too, for people contemplating any sort of things, naval, any questions or any sort of concerns you may have about your boat. 1-866-625-9378 is the call-in number. Going to uh, start off by dedicating this show today to the, uh, the 32 folks on board the El Faro, especially four uh, Maine Maritime graduates who were on that boat and who are presumed lost, probably are, um, yet again proving that if you, uh, man tries to challenge Mother Nature, Mother Nature will usually win. So, uh, well, happy sails to the uh, crew of the El Faro. I'm going to start off telling you about Mike Joyce, the other co-host of uh, Boat Talk. Mike Joyce uh, is not here today. He's uh, doing a delivery. He was down in South Carolina delivering a, a 50-foot sailboat uh, from South Carolina back north to Newport. Unusual to be going north this time of the year, but he is uh, was waiting to do that when uh, Hurricane Joaquin made its scene. So rather than leaving uh, before that storm, they uh, took shelter in South Carolina. And during the, after the, the, uh, Hurricane Joaquin left. They tried to head uh, north, but the winds were coming out of the north at the time, and the, the boat got beat up pretty badly trying to go uh, towards Cape Hatteras, so they turned around and went back to South Carolina. And at that point, the captain realized that his uh, his window had closed. He had some commitments back in Maine that he had to leave the boat and go, so there was Mike uh, on the boat alone. With uh, They did find somebody before the captain left uh this is the other side mike always talks about what great time he has on the water and how he enjoys doing deliveries it's there's two sides of that coin and this is the other side of that coin they did find a a substitute captain to take the boat who uh was a, a bit 
unusual, I guess we'll say, in, in first appearances, but uh, they needed the captain, so Wally signed on to be the captain, and the the, re- the original captain left. And while they were getting the boat ready to leave, uh, Mike and Wally had some differences about how to store extra fuel on the boat, or they should tie it on out front or put it into the cockpit, and the various sort. Of, and Wally, I guess, does not take criticism very well. He threw two buggies and left. So there you are, trying to do a delivery by yourself. No, that's not going to work. The, the owner of the boat says, well, I'll help, but uh, i got to let you know that I have uh, some medical issues, and I pass out every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is the joys of, of uh, delivery. We'll have to get a continuing story from Mike when he gets back next month. But uh, I believe now the winds have turned favorable, and they have found another captain who seems to be all right who is going to join the ship and they probably are on their way around Cape Hatteras right now hopefully headed back north what fun to be a delivery captain or a crew in this case so I'm going to go right to Zachary Cliver and Genevieve McDonald uh, Zachary you are a COA graduate that right yes yes and did you uh, become a, a naturalist on the whaleboats immediately after graduating from college? Uh, yes, I was actually still in college when I started back in 1989. I oh, you started as, in college. Great. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I started with uh, Allied Whale as an intern working with Bob Bowman on Maine whale and seabird trips out of Northeast Harbor. And then the next year went to work on Bar Harbor boats and stayed there since 1990. Mm-hmm. So you've seen your fair share of whales, but uh, one whale that you have not until very recently seen is a blue whale. Why don't you explain what a blue whale, are they really blue? Yeah, they actually are blue. And And big. uh, And enormous, yeah, the biggest of all the whales on Earth. And uh, when they come up, they have a bluish-gray color that's very mottled and uh, beautiful and underwater you can actually see them before they surface. It's kind of like a translucent kind of bluish. They're actually compressing the water slightly as they come up, right? And yes. So, and, and it yeah. makes a, what you call a footprint. I thought that was an interesting <laughs> name for it. It's like an area of flat water just above the whale. Yes, exactly. When they're moving their tail back and forth, which is enormous, uh, they push a lot of water to the surface, and when they dive... Uh, that leaves this circular um, print that could, you know, in the case of a blue whale, it could be the size of a house. Wow. And it is a clear area of water that stays on top of the ocean for a long time. And so you can kind of follow them along as they swim, just following their, their trail of footprints. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you've also seen a sperm whale, which I believe are fairly rare, too. Yes, we had two sperm whales show up on September 17th, and they were out in deep water, over 800 feet of water. And we had a handful of sightings uh, this for about a 10-day period, and that was only the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth days that any boat out of Bar Harbor had seen sperm whales. So it was a really exciting fall to have, you know, our first blue whale and have a bunch of sperm whale sightings and to encounter Moby Dick. It was, it was thrilling. 
So the the uh, the tourists who are on board this boat who have never seen whales before in their life, um, did they were they particularly impressed by the fact that they were that rare whales that they were seeing also, or are they just a whale is a whale or is a whale? No, I think that they understood by our excitement uh-huh. as well that they were seeing something very special and uh, the energy was very high on the boat. Um, we had uh, a Bar Harbor resident named Jill Weber who came out. She heard through the grapevine that there was a blue whale and she came on the trip, uh, ran down to the boat and jumped on. And uh, that, was the, that was the day we saw a blue whale and a sperm whale. Wow. And she was thrilled. You know, mm-hmm. I think that was true for a lot of people. They were really um, pleased. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, have you seen any whales that have been have any signs of rope on them when in any of your trips? Oh yes, yeah, a lot over the years. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we're going to be talking with uh, Genevieve here in just a minute too. You, you, and Genevieve are forming a group to uh, try to figure out what to do about um, entanglements. Is that correct? Yeah, this is a, uh, you know, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel or redo or, you know, uh, take away from what a lot of people are already doing. But we um, we had an entangled whale back in June, a finback whale uh, south of the rock, and it was, uh, it was kind of a frustrating situation. Nothing uh, was able to, you know, no one was able to get out to it to rescue it and help it. And, uh, a, you know, there was a big effort that went into uh, trying to put together a boat and plane operation afterward to go find it. But um, we, you know, we uh, met through that and realized that we had common cause in trying to figure out what could be done in the long term. Mm-hmm. That we need, we need a long-term outlook for this problem. It's not going to go away. Um, we're, you know, the fishermen are do, making great strides and doing what's being asked of them. And there's a lot that, you know, is, you know, being done, but these are kind of, I don't want to say band-aid, but they're incremental things. And we hope that they add up to a lot, a big, you know, positive, um, success that we have a great reduction in entanglement. Um, but what do we want this to look like in 30 years? You know, mm-hmm. and and maybe this needs a technological solution. So we're interested in uh, putting together a working group. We've come up with a name, and we have an email. And uh, the idea is to really see what has been done, and try to figure out where um, research money could go, and what could be done to help with this issue. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would add to that utilizing uh, resources that we already have that maybe aren't being utilized to their maximum potential. Um, I'm a commercial fisherman out of Stonington, Maine, and although I do not speak on their behalf, I'm the Down East Region representative on the Maine Lobster Advisory Council. And so I talk to many fishermen up and down the coast about this issue and other issues, and I personally feel that the commercial fishermen in our area could be a greater part of the solution, um, and as opposed to being on the defense so much could be a big piece of the collaborative effort to um, to address this issue, if you will. Right, right. It it makes sense to approach the fishermen and say, what can we do together about this, rather than just telling the fishermen what they what they have to do. Now, let's, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there are some some rules already in place for, for whale entanglement that involve uh, uh, 
putting a the lobster traps on a uh, single line uh, I guess between what three and six miles you have to have uh, was it four or six traps on a line so there's a there's a whole big list actually of uh, whale regulations we have breakaways which are designed so the buoy will break away from the line in case of entanglement we have um, a limit to how often float rope can be used and where it can be used which is trap um, trap warp that drifts up off the bottom uh, we have trawling up requirements that I believe are at three, six, and twelve miles. We go from five to twenty trap trawls. Yeah, yep. So it reduces the amount of um, vertical lines in the water. And we also have gear marking requirements. So, with um, do you go that far out, twelve miles? I don't. I'm an inshore fisherman, so no. I'm within the three mile line. I would be too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, for the folks who do go out. To, to the deep water where there is a what, 25 traps on one line? Is that what the... Uh, I think the minimum requirement is 20. 20, but. yeah, on one line. Um, are they spaced out so that when you haul them up, you're not hauling up all 20 at, at one time? No, you're hauling up all 20. That's yeah. a lot well, of I mean, weight. one after the other, but you put 20 on the boat and then yeah. set 20 back out. That's it is a lot, lot of weight. That could be dangerous somewhat. I mean, there must be a fairly large boat in order to be able to handle that. Yeah. So that seems to me sort of a, what you were talking about, uh, rules that are kind of imposed from above rather than dealing with uh, how, to, how to make it work with the fishermen. I think one of the greatest things that we're overlooking is the potential network. And there are approximately 5,000 lobster license holders in the state. And so you have 5,000 boats that are already on the water. And how do you want to utilize that resource? Mm -hmm. You know, and the fishermen are very compassionate about the marine ecosystem they've kind of been put in this almost vilified position but there are a lot of people that are willing to you know do more what that more could be maybe you're a lookout maybe you're reporting something maybe you're you know tracking the progress of a entangled animal off the coast i mean you you really have this huge network of lookouts that aren't being utilized really whatsoever yes um we'll go off at a tangent right here now um <laughs> Tracking is one of uh, my pet interests uh, in the t in terms of slocum gliders, which I guess I should explain slocum gl gliders. They are gliders, but they go glide through the water rather than the air, and they are very uh, sophisticated. Uh, I guess we'll call it a motor in them. It's not really a motor because they only glide, but uh, the uh, internal uh, engine in them is such that it can change its buoyancy from positive to negative. So the way it glides through water is when it starts at the top, it uh, somehow uh, makes itself a negative buoyancy and it'll start to sink. And as it sinks, being a, a glider shape, it sort of glides down a, a slope down to some designated um, depth that the uh, the computers on board can can read. And then it changes its buoyancy to positive and starts gliding back up again. But while it's doing its gliding, it has all sorts of uh, sensors and sonars and stuff on board so it can listen for whales and uh, identify where they are uh, by locating them. And then when it makes it back to the surface, it can transmit this information to, uh, I don't know where here in the coast of Maine, but it seems like it ought to be somewhere handy for the fishermen to be able to find out where the whales are too. Slocum gliders are very interesting. It's a good thing to check on uh, Google when you have nothing better to do. So, uh, Genevieve, how many traps do you have out when you're fishing in the middle of summer? 
So the legal limit in Maine is 800. That's the maximum that a That's a lot of work to handle 800 traps. It is, yeah. How many how many do you have? Uh, I fish a half gang. So 400. 400. Yeah, that's more reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your boat uh, is it did you buy it new? Um, I didn't. I have a 32 Holland that was built by Holland's Boat Shop in Belfast in 1982. Holland wooden. Uh, no, fiberglass. Fiberglass. Yep. Okay. Um, what's the name of it? Uh, the Hello Darling Two. Hello Darling Two. T O O. No, number T- two. Roman T- numeral two. <laughs> huh. It's interesting. I I uh, going off on a tangent again here. Well, uh, I got to compliment both of your parents for uh, for naming their children with nice. Uh, old, old uh, names of Zachary and Genevieve. Are, well, thank you. Are, are, <laughs> I like the old names. But we have a phone call, so uh, we'll have a, a phone call from Frank. Good morning, Frank. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hey, Alan. It's Frank Donnelly calling in from the main peace walk. Pentagon's impact on the ocean. I left a message with Zach. But anyways, and we got a nice van with a beautiful banner on the side that Russell Ray uh, painted with a dolphin mounted on the top that he made back in 79 on a Greenpeace walk. And this is all about the ocean. All about the ocean. The Pentagon's impact on the ocean. Which, entanglements are real visual, but the Pentagon's impact on the ocean is not. It's sonar. They're the biggest polluters of the of the earth. All that militarization has a big impact on the ocean. Entanglements are issued for sure, but like I said, that's a visual issue that everybody can see and understand. This issue is kind of under the sea and out of sight, but being done all over the world makes entanglements pale in comparison to this. That's my wrap. Join us on the walk. We're right now. They're coming up right behind me. We're about three miles out of Rockland. Last night we spent it in Camden. Tonight we're doing a gathering at the, the Unitarian Church in Rockland. Potluck at six. Yak yak stuff. We got people from all over the country. Join us. Join us. Join us. So you're on Route One heading. Route One to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We'll be in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on the 24th at Portsmouth. Naval Yard uh, Saturday. I think we're going to be we're going to be in Bath, Maine. Uh, we're going to you know Damascata, uh, Bath, Brunswick. You know, spending the night having potlucks and yak yaks at churches and homestays. Uh, right now, there's about twenty of us. Sometimes there's fifty. Sometimes there's ten. Uh-huh. And come and talk about entanglement. You know. We need fishermen on board. I talked to some fishermen yesterday in Camden. They thought we were from out of space. But anyways, that's the deal. <laughs> well, thank you, Frank. We I appreciate right. the Are you going to be uh, um, meeting up with any boats in any of the places you go to? Any boats? We're going to try to meet up with a boat in Bath, the, 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 the big destroyer that they're building uh, to uh, run over whales. Yeah, run over whales. Any boats? No, but I, I tried the Island Institute I talked to, but I don't know if they're going to do anything with us or not. Um, anyway, I mean, it's been on ERU a lot. We were on, they were on ERU the other day, some of the people on the walk, Star and Russell. But somebody needs to join us, join us from the seafood industry. 
Okay, the yeah. The whaling industry. All right, so they can just meet you somewhere along the way. You're just south of uh, yeah, Rockland go- now. Google them online. It's constantly. I'm not a computer geek, but we got them with us okay. every day. There's stuff on the computer about it. Huh. All right, we'll check out the Peace Walk. Is there, is there, we are, we're attached to their website at ERU at this, at this moment. Ah, good. WERU.org, and we'll yeah, that part of link from there. She'll, she'll be able to hook you up. Very good. Okay, Bye-bye. Frank, thanks. We have another phone call, so we'll need to go to Catherine. Good morning, Catherine. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. I love your program. Um, I just want to give testimony to these wonderful souls. I was sort of, sort of a lagger yesterday in the walk, but I was dressed as the ocean. Um, and they are so committed and so wonderful. And yes, I will be there tonight bringing pear juice. I'm going to go get some pears and juice it and for them. And please, please, please people, if you see them on the road, give them a honk. If you want to stop your car and just join them, do it. Um, at the very least, at the very least, you will make new wonderful friends. So thank you, Frank. See you tonight. Bye. Well, thank you. Our phone number to Boat Talk is one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. if you'd like to uh, join in the conversation. We're going to go back to uh, to whales and ropes right now. Um, how can you tell me how how long uh, lobster fishermen have been fishing this far offshore? Is that sort of a new phenomenon too? That's made it more difficult for the whales. I wouldn't say that it's a new phenomenon, um, but it is becoming more common. There's an increase in offshore fishing activity. Um, there's always been some offshore fishing activity, of course, through ground fishing and other fisheries. But um, it is true that recently more lobstermen are probably pushing further offshore. Mm-hmm. And getting bigger boats to do that than Bigger muscle. boats. I mean, it's big weather out there, especially yeah. if you're going to be a winter fisherman. Big weather, big trawls. So, like you say, it's something that really needs our attention. We need to figure out how to, how to work with this. Um, you mentioned floating rope. I think we need to uh, dis- describe what the difference between floating rope and sinking rope is. Obviously, the, the one floats and one sinks, but the, the sinking rope, uh, supposedly, be, by virtue of its sinking, makes only one straight line from the bottom straight up to the buoy, but floating ropes uh, tend to uh, have more rope hanging in the water for the same depth. Is that correct? In theory. In theory. In yeah. theory. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of weight be, both between ground lines run between traps and there's a lot of weight, you know, both between traps and bringing a vertical line down. Yeah. Um, being a commercial fisherman, I probably have a different opinion than Zach about a float rope. Um, I'm not sure that that particular regulation is as effective as we would like it to be. Um, and it is very much cost prohibitive, and it does pose a danger, and it's a it's a real problem. I mean, when you have traps and things that are, um, you know, previously when there was floating rope, it was up off the bottom, but now you have things that are rocked down, and you have, you know, things that are tangled, and it is um, a bigger risk and liability to have to use sinking rope. Right, yeah, more chafe on the bottom, too. More chafe, um, so you go through gear, and then you may have more ghost traps, which is something we hope to avoid Mm -hmm. also, so it's it's a debatable issue. Yeah, so uh, back to to Slocum gliders of sorts, I wonder if anybody's ever thought about having a floating lobster traps that you know could change their own ballast so that you could send a signal down and they would just float up rather than have a line to pull them up 
Yeah, there's a there's a researcher at, uh, down at working with Sea Grant who was a fisherman and did a lot of pioneering work with that. I've heard him speak a couple of times. I know it's something that's out there, and it sounds you know you know like you know incredible. Like you know how could that be possible? But if we could put a man on the moon, how can we not? do a better job of solving this this issue that's right that affects so many people and is not going away you know this is the kind of thing that we ought to be looking at things like uh ropeless gear i said it you know crazy <laughs> idea um also uh you know different colored line it appears that with right whales red or orange rope actually may be a deterrent. They can see it better. They're, that's the food that they search for. The, the copepods are that color, and they seem to tune to that, and they seem to react to hmm. ropes that are diff, you know, brightly colored uh, red and orange. Um, it could be the, the rope stiffness can make a difference in whether they get entangled or not, or even how strong the rope is. Um, I'm not saying people aren't looking at this, but I think uh, you know, the idea for the industry to take a more proactive role, what Genevieve is doing here, you know, uh, I'm really excited about being part of this uh, effort to bring people together. And we're interested in having engineers, maybe boat designers be part of this working group. Um, you know, it could be a whole host of people that have special knowledge that could help in trying to figure out what we could do in the long term. Because again, I think this is a we're looking at a long-term solution here. This um, we had uh, at one point in June when we found that entangled finback whale. We had an we had a dead say whale come ashore in Jonesport that had entanglement scars. We had a right whale in the Bay of Funday that was entangled at the same time, and then we had a uh, this female humpback whale that was in, rescued at at uh, Cassius Ledge that was entangled. So this issue is still there. And, um, you know, we, I think there's, there's more that can be done in the long term to find um, a technological solution and even advocate for the funding for that. That's where we have some common cause. Imagine if the industry and the environmental groups and the scientists were all together in identifying where the funding could best be used mm -hmm. to solve this problem. Imagine going to Senator Collins and King and say, no, we're all on the same page. They'd be like, are you kidding? You know, we've never seen this before. What do you mean you're all the same? No, we're all on the same page. We want to do this together. We want to, we need, you know, $20 million to do this. Oh, okay, well, you sure you're on the same page? Yep, we're on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's exciting to be able to put together a group that operates somewhat outside of the political stru structure and a yes. little, the, the posturing and the things that come along with that and to kind of be able to open the dialogue between different groups and facilitate some effective collaboration um, instead of being on the defense or, you know, this and that, it, it would be really nice to see people come together. And, is you know, there's short-term solutions. There's things we could be doing now that would – that Finback is a good example. There was a lot of frustration from everybody involved because there there was no response. There, there was no resources. The weather was bad. There was a lot of factors. But you have commercial fishermen that are there. They're, they're there. They're on the scene. They're hearing the call. And – they can't do anything. Their their hands are tied, and it's it's very frustrating. Have you ever, ever come upon a uh, entangled whale? I haven't, but I like I said before, I'm inshore. Um, yeah. I see minkies, but I rarely rarely see big whales. Um, other fishermen do come upon entangled whales, and it would be it would be great if 
we could mitigate some of the fear that comes along with reporting strandings, reporting entanglements, um, being willing to stand by, or even actively participating in the entanglement Why is it, process. Do you think that, that some fishermen would not want to report that? Well, there's a lot that comes down. I mean, it comes down through regulations, and you know, you kind of get put on the the defense quite a bit. Oh, really? Huh. By the uh, DMR? No, it comes. It's federal. Federal. Whale, whale hmm. laws are federal. Huh. Oh. So, go ahead. You can count against them, you know, in that equation uh, that NOAA looks at for regulations. You know, so reporting it, actually, there's a disadvantage to doing that because um, it can affect the rules in the long run. So, um, uh, that's that's too bad that that's the kind of the lay of the land. That's something that your working group should really look at and (laughs) see if you can make it work better. We, when when whale watch boats find whales, um, we you know part of our uh, mandate through the program that we're part of a national program called Whale Sense is to report that entanglement immediately, which we do. Um, what if we had a network where we could call fishermen to help stand by? We can't stay there forever. We have hundreds of people on board. We can't you know, stay for the whole day. Mm-hmm. We often are limited by time. And uh, it's been a challenge to, to keep people out there you know, th- and say, you know, no, we have to wait until a boat comes. But the fishermen are nearby, and I know they'd love to help just even to stand by with the whale and wait till help comes. Even that, even getting to that first step would be would be um, tremendous. So you must. Rem- I mean, you, what did you say? 1990 is how long. So you must be able to easily recall before whale regulations were a big deal, and the relationship that you had with fishermen then must be different than the relationship you have now. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, um, you know, at that time, um, Bob Bowman was training people up and down the coast, uh, fishermen, to to actively. Uh, help with this entanglement, and there was much more rapport. Um, now, Maine DMR has kind of taken over that role um, of doing minke whale entanglement, and then with the okay of NOAA, they can help with disentangling humpbacks and right whales. Um, but um, we, you know, I think uh, uh, historically, we, we used to get called a lot from gillnet fishermen and lobster fishermen about whale sightings. They still have been very helpful with us, but you know, it's it's. I think it's it's harder for them to feel comfortable doing it's that. A little more strained than it yeah. was then. I'm oh sure. yeah, yeah, it really is. And those and these, the fishermen are the people that are out there that have been there for generations that love the ocean. They that's part of the life. They they shouldn't be put in a position where they, um, f- you know, feel uh, they they. Uh, angst uh, or uh, uh, anger against whales i mean i that's the last thing i think you know that should be happening they should i know a lot of them care deeply about all the wonderful things they see out there and and uh and you know love seeing a whale so um you know i think there's i think there's a lot that we can do proactively yes yes it, yeah. and i just need the energy from people to do it and i think you're 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 forming this group is is a wonderful thing but we have another phone call so let's go to john good morning john uh, good morning good morning i'm wondering if you're a guest would care to comment on uh, ship strikes and just how uh, what the mortality with ship strikes and how that compares to entanglement if anybody's got any 
pretty hard to say exactly what the score is, but uh, yeah, yeah, ship strikes are, are uh, significant, and they're unfortunately going to increase. I'm afraid. Yeah, I Great. can. Thank you, John. Thank you. Yeah, um, the right whale research team uh, over a 30-year period documented about 35 right whales that were hit and killed by ships on the eastern seaboard. Uh, let, let me interject one quick thing: is sure. right whales are, are easy to count because mostly do they they float when they're when they die? Is that correct? So it's easier to tell rather than the common sinking whale. Absolutely, yes. So anyway, go ahead, go ahead with yeah. the right whale report. Yeah, the fin, finback whales are negatively buoyant and they often sink. But sometimes when a whale sinks, then its body takes on gases and it will float back to the surface. But not always. But right whales do, because they have such a thick layer of blubber, do tend to float. And uh, they found, you know, 35 that had been hit and killed by ships. This... Um, really galvanized the conservation and scientific community to, to really push Do they have any idea what, what percentage of the population of the right whales at the time was? Well, at that time, you were looking at a population of around 300 to 350. So, Ooh, there was, so that's significant, isn't it? Well, yeah. Now the population estimate is back up around 500. So that's a very exciting development. But at that time, yes, given that kind of, those kind of statistics, that, that this was, you know, we're looking at the potential of losing a, a whale on our watch. And that was, that was a tr tremendous, uh, uh, you know, pressure on them to, to, to do something. Uh, fortunately, uh, a couple of measures have been taken in recent years. Uh, in the Bay of Funday, uh, the shipping lane was moved uh, that leads into St. John out of the area where right whales are most abundant. Uh, they, they were able to move the shipping lane. In just a couple of years, um, Mo Brown did a lot of that uh, advocacy, a scientist, um, and normally the process takes about 10 years, and they did it in just a couple of years. So the shipping community really responded. Off Boston, they did the same thing. They realized where the abundance of right whales are. They moved the shipping lane. And then with these new uh, rules that went in place six years ago where they slowed ships down in areas where right whales are seasonally abundant, so far, in it looks very promising because there's been an 80% reduction in ship ah. strikes because of these things. So this is a really exciting development. Very good. Very good. Mm -hmm. our, our friend Russell is on the phone. So let's go to Russell. Good morning, Russell. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to point out that the Navy has a long history of striking whales with their ships, and uh, including my whales. I'm calling from the Maine Peace Walk. And I just wanted to point that out. Yes. All right. I, I, go ahead, Zachary. Well, uh, I do appreciate this Peace Walk and uh, what you guys are doing. Uh, of course, sound travels through water four to five times quicker than air, and whales have evolved for millions of years in this environment. Sound is incredibly important to them. Um, Around the world, there's been many cases where military using low-frequency and mid-frequency sonar have had huge, a huge impact on whales, especially those that use sonar, like beaked whales that are found in, in canyons. Uh, uh, there's been, uh, an, you know, I'm not going to go into all the, the research that's been done there, but a, a wonderful book, if you're more interested in this, is called War of the Whales, and it documents this battle that's been taking place with the conservation community 
and the public um, trying to get the Navy to address this issue uh, for a long time. Recently, they had a pass because of um, uh, military um, prerogative. They were they were allowed to, to continue this, not that they made an effort to, to do it in areas where whales are, but there's been a long-term study that they were involved in funding out in California uh, by some of the top scientists in the world uh, looking at how whales react to sound. And um, recently in off the West Coast, uh, uh, the judge uh, in that case that's been going on and being repealed and going on, um, and, and the Navy have come to a, uh, the idea that they're going to not do this, in, you know, the, that uh, it's, a ba- it's a big victory for that. So that's, uh, but it is an issue. It's a good thing, too. And I, that's, I think, uh, something else that the Slocum gliders could take care of is uh, rather than using active sonar, they could have slope. Uh, whole herd of slocum gliders doing the same sort of passive listening and come up with the same results but that's another story we have uh, Catherine on the line so we're going to go to Catherine. good morning Catherine. back welcome back to boat talk good morning um i, I need education because maybe i missed this point if whales are um are being governed by their sonar capabilities and why don't they are they sleeping when they're hit, why don't they, is the frequency a different frequency that they're not picking up? Why aren't they aware of what's coming at them? Um, and we all know that by the time it gets out in the news, the news, that they're doing sonar testing, they've been, the Navy's been doing it for decades. And um, so I will just wait your answer off here. Thank you. Hey. Okay, thank you, Catherine. Um, why, why don't whales dive when they hear a boat coming? Okay, if you think about how a ship's hull is designed, the ships are enormous, and the sound from the propellers is behind the ship and underneath the ship. So sound, uh, there's a lot of sound produced underwater behind the ship and on both sides of the ship, but directly in front of the ship, there's an acoustical window where there's no noise. So whales could be feeding uh, at the surface or sleeping, and ships are moving fast. If they are moving fast in areas where they are, um, they just may not hear them. Or another thought is, could whales swim when they do hear the sound until they don't hear sound, and then they stop, right, if they swim, you know, into an area in front of the ship? Hmm. out in California with the blue whales near Los Angeles, one of the world's biggest shipping lanes, there was some research that was done recently where they found the blue whales, uh, when they heard the sound of ships, were actually diving just under the surface of the water and kind of in stealth mode, just swimming just under the surf- surface slowly. What's well, the worst thing they could do? Mm. But they, they have evolved over millions of years they're not, they have no uh, way to uh, understand ships. That's just not part of their reality. They don't, you know, they don't know how to how to think about ships in that way. So, sadly, um, a lot of them get hit, um, you know, accidentally. Yes. So, Genevieve, um, we're going to uh, go off on another tangent too. I had a caller, oh, probably three, four years ago now fellow called in who was a scallop diver and his daughter was the boat tender and his question to me was his daughter said she, she could find no um, uh, 
life jacket, uh, any sort of gear that would fit her comfortably because she was tending the boat all day and she wanted to wear the life jacket all day, but found the, the, the few models that were available to be uh, pretty uncomfortable. You have an experience in that, in that regard, too. Let's, let's go into that story. I do. Um, so for the past three years, I have been working on a project to, with the objective of getting commercial foul weather gear for women. Um, and for the past six months or so, I have been collaborating with Grundens USA or Grungens USA on the creation of foul weather apparel for women in the commercial fishing industry and marine sciences. And I'm happy to report that the release is at the Pacific Marine Expo in Seattle. Which is coming up next month. Uh, my husband and I are flying out to participate in the grand reveal. And out of this project has also come the formation. We're not quite there yet, but the formation of the Women's Commercial Fisheries Alliance, which will be an organization aimed at advocating for women in the commercial fisheries. Very good. So a little repetitive there with the, the commercial fisheries, but it, it was a real problem, and now there's a solution, so I'm There's a website for the Women's Commercial Fisheries There Law? isn't. We're, I think we're going to do our launch in hand with um, Grundens on the West Coast. Okay. Well, we'll be following that on Boat Talk. That's great. Um, are you the only female in your family who fishes? I am, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's kind of a rarity. There's a, there's definitely, I know, quite a few um, mother-daughter teams mm -hmm. throughout the state. There's a lot more women on the water than I've seen lately. That's great. There is. There's a tremendous increase, not only as captains and crew, but also in fisheries management and leadership and science and distribution. It's, it's amazing. It's great mm -hmm. to see. Unfortunately, uh, a couple of the uh, crew members on the El Faro were women. Yeah, it is. I have some friends that um, were friends with the, the woman that passed away from the, the ship. It's sad. Hmm. Okay, um, I brought one other little piece of information that uh, I'd like to talk about today. Uh, last month, we talked about uh, the Amels Group, a uh, boat building outfit in the Netherlands, who built a, uh, a boat, a uh, hundred hundred meter boat uh, that they called the yacht service vessel it was a, a separate boat that you brought along with your yacht where you kept your the the crew and the uh, the washer and dryer and all the stuff that you didn't need on your yacht but you really needed kept that separate so anyway the same group Amel's group have made now a uh, or are making a uh, an ice breaking mega yacht that comes in um, 65 to 100 meter sizes so that's like you know almost 400 feet long for the big size icebreaker uh polar polar uh capable uh yacht uh that they say breaks ice by backing into it which which boggles my mind it sounds like that's what you don't want to do with a boat is to back your propeller and your rudder into the ice but uh I called Amels on that, and uh, this per the salesman I spoke to thought it was a little bit boggling, too. He wasn't really familiar with the model. And uh, so maybe we'll have an answer for that one next week. But uh, just think of uh, the possibilities of a few guys out there uh, on the, in the polar ice cap just going around breaking ice for the fun of it. You know, like, here, hold my beer and watch this kind of attitude. And, you know, what, what's that going to do for, uh, for the... Uh, shrinking ice cap in the, the water that's going on there but anyway you can check out um ice breaking mega yacht on the, the g captain website pretty interesting article 
this, the uh, headlines to the article says, uh, new ice-breaking mega, mega yacht will have adventurous billionaires drooling. I don't know about drooling, but I, it, it, to me, it, it's like a, having a four-wheeler in the woods, uh, you know, kind of the effect that they have on the woods. It, this is going to do the same thing to, the, to all the ice up there. It's shrinking too fast anyway. So uh, back to whales. Um, are, are they going south now? Do they hang out here all year or pretty much go back to warm water this time of the year? Yeah. Yeah, some of them do migrate south. The humpback whales will go to the Caribbean where they mate and give birth to their young. Uh, it seems a lot of the finback whales will move uh, to the mid-Atlantic. or So they mate and give birth... In- their gestation period isn't that quick. Is it? I mean, do they mate one year and give birth the following year? Or what? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They have a year-long uh, pregnancy. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah, so they mate in the winter months, and then they go back down there the following year and give birth to their young. Uh, yeah, a lot of the whales that we have here in the summer, the minkies, the finbacks, the humpbacks, tend to, to move out of the Gulf of Maine, although pods of finbacks have been seen here. Uh, during winter following schools of fish. So it seems that they don't go uh, like the humpback through these long fasts without food uh, (coughs) as much. And um, there have been humpback whales that have overwintered here, especially the younger whales uh, that are not mating. Uh, They don't, they're going to stay more in the on the eastern seaboard and follow fish and feed until they get big enough to go south to mate. Uh, the right whale is a different story. They're here year-round, and they're a lot here in the winter. You know, uh, We did some surveys f- with the New England Aquarium research team where they hired our boat to take them out and look for right whales, and we took uh, members of the Maine Lobstermen's Association and Down East Lobstermen's with us, and uh, on one of those trips, we saw 35 right whales uh, out um, uh, near Cassius Ledge and uh, uh, out um, in Jordan Basin, that area pretty far out. Um, that a lot of the right whales push down to Cape Cod Bay and uh, in the late winter and spring and feed on plankton, on copepods, and they actually have a closure uh, for fishing there, right, um, during that time. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, is entanglement as much of a problem down in the Caribbean? Um, you know, it's a good question. I, I'm not very familiar with 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 that. Mm. Um, I did work down in the Dominican Republic, and uh, I don't remember seeing a lot of fixed gear when I was there. Yeah, I have but, but I but I'm sure that uh, I mean around the there world. There must be some. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I did. You know, there's 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 gear everywhere. So, you know, uh, part of the the excitement of starting a group like this is, you know, to help. Uh, impact this globally, you know. Um, and and by the way, you know, Maine Lobstermen's Association and uh, there's a bycatch reduction uh, group uh, or um, is that, am I getting it right? Yeah, they, they work with animal uh, and fisheries uh, entanglement and so they're a consortium and it's based, I, I believe, out in the Wingo Aquarium. They have worked closely with Maine Lobstermen's Association and they've been doing a lot of collaborative things for a long time. And there's they a have, tremendous amount yeah. of work about this issue that mm-hmm. has been done and continues to be done by a variety of organizations. Okay. We yes. have, we have uh, Catherine back on the phone again, so let's go back to Catherine. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. 
um, at the beginning of your discussion, which I'm just loving, um, you mentioned that on a whale watch tour, you saw sperm whales and blue whales. Now, I'm wondering how far out were you, and is this unusual? And I was privileged to go on a whale watch, which I've done many times, um, to the um, Cape and saw a mother feeding her baby, and the milk was just in the water, and it was so beautiful. And the comment I have to make after that question was, um, I'm sure you're painfully aware what's going on in the Pacific Ocean from the ongoing three nuclear meltdowns that cannot be stopped, thus the water is being poured into the ocean, has been since that fateful day of the tsunami and the earthquake. And if you go to enenews.com, that will tell you as much as they can about what's going on. I just hope you're aware of that because the Pacific Ocean is dead, basically. Um, and our brothers, sisters are dying over there. So, yes, how far were you out and was that unusual? Thank you. Yes, well, it certainly was unusual for us. Uh, you know, uh, my first sper sperm whale uh, sighting in the Gulf of Maine was in 2011. And so we've had a few sightings since then. But, uh, you know, for over 20 years, I had never seen one here. And we've been all over the Gulf of Maine doing trips. What is their usual habitat range? Yeah, the sperm whale likes deep water around the world. So they're found generally out on the continental slope, you know, outside of George's Bank in very deep water, thousands of feet, diving deep for squid and sharks and, and deep, uh, well, giant squid. They eat sharks? Yes, they'll eat sharks. They'll huh. eat dog, a lot of dogfish and all variety of sharks. They have a throat that's two to three feet wide, and they can take big prey. Wow. Yeah. I and, knew they ate squid, and yes. that's, uh, I believe, how, uh, what is it? Uh, spermaceti is is uh, made by the semi-dissolved squid beaks. Well, that I think you're talking about ambergris. Ambergris, ambergris yes, is yeah, the ambergris. Un, yes, yeah. it's the undigested parts of squid that are found in the intestines that in the, the sperm whale. Occasionally, they cough them up, and they collected these big pieces of or kind of chalky material floating, and realized that it had the ability to hold smell and uh, put it in perfume. And it and and many women who've come aboard said, you know, when when the ambergris the per, was in the perfume, it, the the perfume would last a lot longer. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the sperm whales are using their uh, their head case, that enormous chamber in the head that's filled with oil, hundreds of gallons of a um, kind of a waxy um, uh, liquid as um, a sound chamber to find prey and then stun prey with the sound. Oh, wow. So they are, they emit a sound that, that can stun? Yes. Wow. The, the sounds are at about 230 decibels. It's the loudest oh, uh, animal. Amazing. It's the loudest animal sound on earth. Yeah. And it's and they that would hurt. Oh, they blast it out of the front of the head. You think of sperm whales. They just have one. They have one uh, row of teeth on the bottom jaw and none on the upper. They're not. They're not chewing uh, their prey a lot. They're grasping. They may be breaking it up, hmm. but um, the, 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 the it's the sound that really allows them to to be successful down there. Well, okay. the dick really is the fearsome white whale. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we have uh, another yes. phone call. So let's go to Eddie. Good morning, Eddie. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi, it's, it's Edie. Sorry. <laughs> um, I love the show. I'm so glad you're having this topic. And I wanted to mention an old book that's a wonderful resource for learning more about whales. It's called Mind in the Waters by Joan McIntyre. 
and it's a, an anthology of essays, and some of them are about science, and some of them are about the whale's intelligence and consciousness. And um, I've spent a fair amount of time with the humpback whales in Hawaii and heard them singing. It's wonderful. It's, you know, transporting experience. Um, and I also wanted to voice a concern about the, the baleen whales. When they're gathering krill, I'm, I'm wondering if there are some studies beginning on all the little bits of microplastic that they possibly have no way to sieve out, you know. So I just wanted to thank you for the show. That's a good question. With microplastics in the water are getting to be a, a terrible problem. And uh, what, have they examined any baleen or anything from these whales to see if there's plastic getting stuck in there? You know, it's a, it's a good question, and I'm not um, aware of any research papers that have come out about microplastics within whales. However, in fish, in tuna and swordfish, salmon, they have, have found plastic. And, of course... Um, uh, you know, some of this is, pla is you know, all the man-made plastic that goes into the ocean and then breaks down and into smaller and smaller bits. Uh, uh, one of my naturalists uh, worked on the uh, semester at sea ship that goes from Hawaii to Tahiti, and they also make runs from the west coast of California out to Hawaii, and they sample all along the way throughout the water column. It's an incredible re research program that's been going on for 40 years, and they have documented this building up of microplastics in all the water column there. Mm -hmm. it, is a, it is a real big concern. Um, I'm not sure if everybody's aware of this, but uh, a lot of um, big uh, companies have been using micro uh, beads in toothpaste and in cosmetics. shampoo and cosmetics. It, yes, and California a, just banned this. I wish I could bring it up yeah. to memory, but there's an online listing that will go through and tell you which companies use microbeads. And yeah. I actually, it was a couple months ago, went through and changed out a lot of my household products, cosmetic products and cleaning products because yeah. they use microbeads and there's no need for it. They don't They don't do anything. They're for color. They're additives. They're they're yeah. pointless and they're a terrible pollutant. Right, and, they, and they, they're a filler. Yeah. They're just trying to fill so you buy more product. Yeah. You know? I believe it's, a, it's one of the FDA websites that yes. will, will list the yeah. products that carry it. So that would yes. be FDA.gov and then yeah. probably forward slash microbeads or yeah. microplastic yeah. or something like yes. that. Very good. Yeah. Well, we've got only about five minutes left of the extra the boat talk and probably don't have time for another phone call. But we'll, uh, I guess... Uh, head out by uh, saying uh, this increase in uh, unusual whales that you've seen, um, that's just probably evidence of a population increase, or do you think um, there's um, maybe some uh, water temperature factors in there too? You know, it's, uh, it's an interesting point, and uh, there is a lot of evidence suggesting that things are changing. We've been seeing a lot of it, and I met with some some of my colleagues in the scientific community and said, you know, you're seeing this, and I'm seeing that, and we're seeing some big changes. And if you think of 2012, when the lobsters shed their shell three months early. Yeah, we have observations the impact, in the commercial fishing industry, too, that are yes, yes, indi this is, indication of a change. Well, yeah. 
there and there you know the right whales disappearing from the bay of funday moving north and us not seeing finback whales as often and and mid-atlantic fish showing up here and there's some big there's some big things going on i'm not sure where this blue whale and sperm whale sightings fit into that if more squid are showing up here maybe that's bringing some of these sperm whales in but this is another area where we have common cause is water temperature this is something that affects the fishermen and the conservation community and everybody and we you know i think that we have a lot more in common than we do different definitely i'm and, very interested you know, in squid i always want to talk about squid yeah <laughs> when we go to the parking lot we can talk about squid <laughs> can i can i mention our email if people are here listening that would like to uh, uh, potentially be part of this working group, you can contact Genevieve and I at lobsterwhale at gmail.com. Lobsterwhale at gmail.com. Yes. Very good. That makes a lot of sense. Well, we got still a couple of minutes left. Is there anything else besides your, your website you'd like to put in? Well, the... the the name of our group is the Maine Lobster Whale Collaborative Working Group. Mm -hmm. So that's we're just a, this is just a foundational. Maybe you could uh, hook up with somebody who uh, is not a, a boat person, but who could help you with the website. You know, be a, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure there's lots of uh, land side work that could be involved with this. You know, oh yeah, yeah. There's probably all kinds of uh, data that you need to collate and with, so forth. With any marine marine based project, there's a ton of shoreside infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, if there's a lawyer, I mean, a lawyer would be a good person to understand, you know, what's ah. going on. And by the way, we're really, we really have talked about this being quite insular. We're not, the idea is that we're not going to, we don't want to be part of political process that's going on right now. <laughs> and we want, we want to have us be a working group that's keeps things close to our sleeve. And maybe we develop something that's public, but we all agree that this is the time to go public with it. It's not going to be an op, you know, an, a, a thing where we're jousting over politics and, you know, what's going on with the large whale take reduction scheme and all the law laws and things like that. This is looking at, you know, how do we build um, uh, a, a long-term solution to this? You know, mm -hmm. how do we how do we make it? You know, even if we can make a few few significant, you know, uh, changes or or lobby for 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 funding so that work can be done. Um, you know, the, the lobster industry is our most important industry. It's a huge, um, uh, hugely important to us, and this shouldn't be hanging over their heads. Okay. You know, we need to we need to figure out a long, a solution to this. Well, one one um, I don't know if you can call it a problem, but I see. Uh, Whales obviously cover a large territory, so probably a lot of people who are interested in this might not be able to drive here locally to a meeting, but uh, might want to join online or however you arrange it. Do you have uh, any? We so uh, we haven't discussed that yet, but I've been working on that um, as well with the Women's Commercial Fisheries Alliance because we're coast yes. to coast, and you know, technology has you know there's there's ways to put it together. We'll mm -hmm. come up with a. A solution to that—that's an easy problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you just go to lobsterwhale@gmail.com and um, join the, all the other fluky people that are trying to <laughs> save the whales. Well, we've uh, come right up against the end of the uh, boat talk for this month. Time to uh, make room for on the wing coming up next here on Community Radio. Salem Sprague saying uh, thank you for supporting Community Radio. Um, thank you to Amy in the engine room for keeping things going. Until uh, next month, happy sales.
Support for WERU comes from